0: This week, the Down and Nerdy podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning... To Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. The biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Less than one week to go before Comic-Con, it's episode 222 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, so excited once again to be going to San Diego Comic-Con this upcoming year to give you all of the coverage there. Now, I will preface it by saying this, there might not be as much live tweeting of panels as the past, but man, are we going to get you behind the scenes into some amazing stuff that's going to be going on in San Diego during Comic-Con The press rooms, all kinds of other stuff from the show floor. Be watching out for videos and photos all over our social media pages. Gonna want to follow us. And actually, this week, gonna give you a little bit, a little piece of Comic Con. Early, there's a new documentary series about fandom called From the Bridge that's going to be coming out. They'll have a panel at Comic-Con on Thursday this year. And director Spencer Lee is going to be joining me to talk about that movie and all of the people that he got to interview for from so many different fandoms. We'll talk about fandom in general, too, and we'll talk about the panel that's going to be coming up this coming Thursday at San Diego Comic-Con. 2018 But before we even talk about anything comic-con related what brought us there it's the comics up next what we're reading on the down and nerdy podcast hey this is cullen bunn the writer of micronauts and you're listening to the down and nerdy podcast pull out the long box fire up the tablet or the laptop whatever you're reading on it's time for what we're reading and the destroyer of worlds Is up first. It's Transformers Unicron number one from IDW Publishing. Of course, we first found out about this book at San Diego Comic Con last year, and it is finally here. Written by the great John Barber, Alex Milne on the art, Sebastian Chang on the colors, and Tom B. Long on the letters. Now, I will say this right away you don't have to read the past Transformers issues to understand what's going on in this book. But it would definitely help. It would certainly help if you read the free comic book day issue that came out for Unicron as well. But basically the gist of what's going on here is Optimus Prime is leading an attack team to try and defeat Unicron and save Kamenus, which is the next planet that Unicron is trying to consume from destruction. If that sounds familiar, it's Windblade's home, and of course Windblade, kind of the boss and if the Transformers right now are our, our president, I guess is the best way that you could call it. Whatever you want to call her, she's in charge. She's the bigwig at this point. And, and I have to say that, I mean, I've always enjoyed John Barber's writing, a Transformers books. I mean, he just seems to understand this gist of how each character works and how they work together. And that is, you know, that is very much on display. In this book, and I mean, you even put Rom in the, book, in the mix there as well, and maybe that's a tiny bit of a spoiler that I shouldn't have let leak out, but Rom's been a part of Transformers books for a little bit now, so that shouldn't be too much of a surprise. And he actually adds another layer to it, too, just the way he takes on the fight, you know, or how he's, how he's kind of been almost going it alone against the rates. Now he has another cause to champion, and there's a personal connection there for him as well. Again, I won't spoil that just in case you haven't read any past issues. But I mean, the, the fight is on right away in this issue. Let me tell you, I mean, this, I mean, definitely wastes no time. And there's big two page spreads in there, which I love. I love that almost any book that John Barber is a part of at some point is going to have this big two page spread of just a massive brawl going on on the page, or at least the beginnings of one. And I love that. Now, here's the thing. The fight's really taking its toll. Not just on Optimus and his team, who he brought Bumblebee and RC with him on this assault, wanted to keep it a small team, but it's also taking its toll on the team that's fighting on the outside as well, with Rom and others involved in that. Now, while all of this is going on, we see two very familiar characters that are kind of part of a plot behind the scenes or not, depending on when you, on your perspective, and given one of the characters there, it's not like you can really trust either one of them, and that's all I will say, because I'm not going to spoil who it is. If you haven't read this yet, you probably could guess at least one of them. But that one part of it eventually reveals itself at the end. So that is an interesting little nugget that happens towards the end of this book. But I have to say, there is a part during this assault where, I really don't want to say what happens, but the Mistress of the Flame It's part of it. And man, this is one of those issues where if you want to see a character just stand up and be everything that they are for their people, Mistress of Flame definitely does that in this issue. It's a big, it's, it's a very, very powerful moment. Let me just say that. And I don't really want to go any further, but it's such a powerful moment. And one of those that really makes you respect the character even more if you haven't already. It was just, it was a very cool moment. But it's also, part of the dynamic of this book is, is that because of Unicron and how destructive and powerful Unicron is, this book really has an all hope is lost feel right from the beginning of the book. And as you see it go on, it's starting to cause some loyalties To be tested. And I think that that's actually going to be just as much a part of the story going forward as anything. But one thing that was a little lighthearted that I really loved in this book that kind of needed a little bit of lightheartedness is that I could easily read a Bumblebee RC team up series. Something about their dynamic and their chemistry together is just so, so great. I hope at some point that we just give them like a four issue series and have them do whatever together. Because I think that that would just be a really, really fun read. So, John, if you're listening and you want to be a part of that book, I mean, I'd read the hell out of it. And I know I'm sure I'm not the only one there. Now, the art is very much what you come to expect from Transformers books. You know Alex Milne's work from other things as well. So, I mean, always good on that front. You can never go wrong with Alex Milne. And, you know, if you're a fan of Transformers books anyway you're going to love this story. This story is well done as always. And it's just, again, I don't understand why you're not looking at these books and the stories that are being told here and using this as a guide for Transformers movies. And I've said this from for years now. Transformers movies don't need humans to be successful at all. And I think that these Transformers books prove that. It's not like they can't be successful with humans either because these comics have proven that as well. But seeing this story alone and some others that have happened recently, I just think it's a winning combination. Another winner from IDW. This is a poll for me. Make sure you're grabbing Transformers Unicron number one. Just add the whole series to your pull box at this point. What could possibly go wrong? We are headed to an outpost. I can't really call it space, I suppose. Outpost Zero number one from Image Comics, and of course, Eisner winner Sean Kelly McKeever, doing the writing, Alexander Tenofenki. I'm sorry, I butchered na- your name, Alexander. I-, I apologize on that, doing the art. And Jean-Francois Bellieu on the colors. Now, we have a group of teenagers here, and I'm going to run through them. We have Aaliyah, Stephen, Sam, and a few others. Aliyah and Stephen are really the main focus of this book. Now, they all live in an outpost... They kind of, spoiler alert, just a tiny one, they crash landed there. And it's one of the areas of the universe that was left to be populated by humans. Now, we're not exactly told why or or who was left behind or why they were left behind, why they had to leave. It's all very vague at this point, but I don't feel like that vagary takes anything away from the story. I actually think it kind of adds to it. Because it, it leaves questions asked that aren't ignored by the characters in the book. Sometimes I have questions about books like, well, why isn't this discussed? And why aren't the characters discussing it? That's one thing that Outpost Zero does very well is that I had these thoughts. And then a couple pages after that, there are the characters discussing the things that I'm actually thinking. So I like that the story takes that into account while well, the reader might be thinking this. So why shouldn't the characters be thinking the same thing? Because it's an obvious question and it's definitely being asked there. So I do love that. Now, outside of the outpost is something called the frost, which is exactly what it sounds like. Picture actually, you know what? Picture Krypton, the sci-fi series about how they were living inside and in Candor, and then the the airlock would kind of open and they would go out and there would be sort of a frost there. There's actually a couple of parallels to Krypton. Now that I now that I think about the story, but it's not an exact replica of the Krypton series. But there certainly are parallels that you could draw there. Now, there's also a group called the Discovery Team, which is Aaliyah's parents are part of that, and they kind of go out there into the Frost to explore for signs of life and past existence. And they discover something while they're out there that kind of is a big, big deal and they have to co- go back and report it, and that's where the story takes an interesting turn. And it happens very, very quickly. That much I could say. This is certainly something that could have been dragged out an issue or two. This happens very quickly, and I thought that, that was a really, really good call by Sean Kelly McKeever and anyone that's a part in the editing team that's a part of putting this book together. Didn't drag it out, just got right to it. Now, one, one thing I also found interesting about this book is the dynamic between the parents and the kids who are kind of headed into adulthood. And they're trying to find out, you know, which team they're going to be a part of, or if the team's going to be chosen for them. And just the way they're all dealing with the situation that they're in and dealing with it in a different way, I think is really, really interesting. And then you have Sam who is sort of the chief's adopted son, the chief, of course, you know, as kind of self-explanatory sort of runs things in the outpost. And, Just we see little bits and pieces of something that's going on with Sam behind closed doors that nobody really knows about. And there was actually a really compelling panel in this book where Sam's watching something. And as you see him walking away after you see what he was watching and you read the words of what's being said. And there's something and I'm not going to reveal what it is because I want to see if you catch it too. There's something as he, as he's walking away that you see, and it's almost like a light bulb moment as a reader where you go, that's where his head is at, and that's not necessarily a good thing. So that was a very, very powerful moment for me that I love that was snuck in there. And it's just how everybody's perspective is different and how one particular character's perspective seems to be changing in a very surprising way. Now, I will say art-wise, very, very good. Really thrives, though, on the big, vast landscape shots, especially when you see the frost a couple of times. And when you see what happens because of this discovery, brilliant artwork there as well. And towards the end, the last few pages alone, I think were really, really superb by Alexandra. I'm not I'm not going to butcher your last name again, Alexander. I promise. So I would say this is another winner for me. Put Outpost Zero number one in your poll box. This is one you're going to want to read. There's a lot of intrigue there. It was. it's almost like you found a way to combine a slow burn and just getting right to the point if that makes sense I mean there were so many things that were not left to the imagination but there are also still so many questions left to be answered I just thought the book was brilliant, brilliantly done from start to finish that's going to do it for what we're reading this week up next time to get a little bit spoilery and talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp that's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast
1: Hey, guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Once
0: again, protecting worlds large and small, it's time for my spoiler-filled review of Ant-Man and the Wasp from Marvel. Once again, can't stress this enough, full of spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen Ant-Man and the Wasp yet, you're going to want to go a little bit forward here in the show. Now, again, I'm not going to run down every every little beat of this movie, but this movie is really about... Two or three things. Let, let's start with this. The fact that we have Hank Pym and his daughter Hope that are going to try to get their mother, try and get Hope's mother back, Janet, who was stuck in the quantum realm. That's one thing that this movie is about. The second thing that this movie is about is what Scott Lang, of course, Paul Rudd's character, did in Civil War, siding with Captain America, violating the Sokovia the Accords, and you have him on house arrest right now, but in not in, and he didn't involve Hank and Hope at all. But because it was their tech that he used, they ended up having to go on the run and pretty much lose everything. They lose their home. They're they're criminals now. They're wanted. So you can imagine that they'd be upset with Scott about that. But because Scott has this weird dream and kind of makes contact with. With Janet and the Quantum Realm, he calls up Hank and not necessarily all is forgiven right away. That's for sure. There's there's plenty of cold shoulder stuff going on, but they kind of need Scott. But Scott's under house arrest and he's, you know, very much trying to get off of house arrest so he can be with his daughter. His daughter does come to visit him, but he wants to, you know, be a dad. That's one thing that he really, really stresses is super important to him is that he wants to be a dad to his daughter. So yes, he's gonna help out Hank and Jan- and excuse me, Hank and Hope because he feels like he needs to, but at the same time, we also have that underlying, I need to be there for my daughter. And then you have Ghost, who is also we find out her name is Ava, who's played by Hannah John Kamen, who we find out what happens to her. And it looks like it was because of something that Hank did to her dad. She he got him fired, so he decided to continue his research on his own and that didn't go well. So the accident gave Hannah this, it's almost like, I can't remember the exact term that they used for it, but it was almost like quantum phasing where her cells are basically ripping each other apart and putting themselves back together the entire time. It's really, really freaky stuff. So you see that, that we you know we see that you know, Hank and Hope are putting this device together to enter the quantum realm. And they need Scott to help them kind of find out where Janet is. And that's kind of the whole beat of where the movie goes from there. And you see the, you know, the fences start to get mended a little bit. And then all the while you have Michael Pena, who's back as Luis, who I love. And we finally got the whole, you know, the one thing I loved about the first Ant-Man movie was the recap. And he went through and when 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 Luis was telling stories, we got to see that again when he was under the truth serum i thought that that was really hilarious there were a lot of funny moments in this movie actually but you see you see scott and Luis have started their own security company so you know they're trying to go legit they're trying to have an actual business to sort of move forward now there's a problem with what they're trying to build as far as as far as hank and hope are concerned they needed a piece but also we find out that Ava and Ghost wants the the piece as well to try and fix what's wrong with her. And then Lawrence Fishburne shows up. That's right, Lawrence Fishburne entering the Marvel realm as Dr. Bill Foster. I got to tell you, I I kind of saw that something wasn't right there, especially since him and Hank just sort of hated each other. But when he showed up with Ava and he was helping her, I got to say I was a little bit surprised, probably shouldn't have been, But I was a little bit surprised. But then, as you see as the movie went on, where Hope wants to do something really, really bad. He wants to actually take Scott's daughter to make him help her. And Dr. Foster says, "Uh uh-uh, you do that, we're done. I've looked the other way on certain things that you did, but people are starting to get hurt, and I'm not going to let you do that. You touch that little girl, and we're finished. So I thought that that was really interesting, and kind of how... He was able to keep her in line in a certain respect, not completely, but in a certain respect. So as I'm watching this movie, I'm trying to figure out who the villain is here. And I'll get to another character that we saw in just a second as far as villains are concerned, because that's a separate issue. But I'm thinking, okay, yeah, Ava's done some bad stuff and she certainly is playing a, a villain role. But at the same time, I couldn't help but keep going back to the fact that is Hank Pym kind of the villain here? Because you could argue that Ava's doing everything that she can to not die because it's basically what's going to happen to her is that her cells are just going to keep ripping each other apart and eventually she's just going to fade away into nothing. Sound familiar? We'll get to that in a minute too. But then you've also got Hank... Who's trying to build this machine to bring Janet back? And he's making all these shady backdoor deals and stuff. And he's doing whatever he needs to do to get his family back. And he's kind of a he's kind of an ass. You know, he's alienated a lot of people in his life, aside from his daughter. And of course, his wife isn't even around. So but it seems like he's alienated a lot of people. We've got Dr. Foster that doesn't like him. Obviously, Ava doesn't like. What was done to her dad and all her dad did was disagree with him. So we're told. Didn't really get the entire story there. But it's one of those things where where Hank's working off of guilt at this point too. And you have to kind of look at the fact, well, if he didn't do X, Y, and Z, would we even be in this mess in the first place? And he's done some bad stuff too, arguably. So you could make a case that Hank Pym is kind of a villain in this movie. Hey, call me crazy. Maybe you totally disagree with me, but not exactly a likable character. Yeah, he has a few comedic beats here and there, but I mean, I understand that Scott Lang stole from him, but he still treats him kind of like garbage even before the whole thing with the Zakovia Accords went down. Yeah, he still kind of treats him like garbage. I mean, he has, they have some moments there as well, but you could tell that Hank's just a tough nut to crack and he's not the nicest guy. So it's hard to rally around a character like that. So maybe I'm stretching it by saying, you know, he could be considered a villain in this movie. Maybe that is a bit of a stretch. But it's certainly something that I considered as I was watching it. Now let's talk about one of the other villains. Let's talk about something I didn't really like about this movie. Walton Goggins, who plays Sonny Birch, who is the guy that they're kind of buying the parts for to make this device to enter the quantum realm. And he tries to screw them over and instead of giving them this part, you know, Sonny finds out who hope really is and they want to partner up and all this other stuff. I won't, I won't bore you with any more of the details. You probably already know them anyway. To me, it just seemed like Sonny Birch was very much an unnecessary villain in this movie. Never really posed much of a threat. I didn't think he was more of an annoyance than anything else. He keeps talking about how he's working with dangerous people and, We don't really get any of the what, where, and why of what's going on other than he has a mole within the FBI that he's kind of using to play his little game. It's just, I never really felt like he mattered in this story. I mean, even when he did get the lab that they were working on and it looked like he might've actually gotten the upper hand, I never for a second thought that they weren't going to get that lab back. Whereas when Ghost was involved, I thought there was a chance, okay, she might actually come out on top on this, in the end, I actually thought that there was a chance that she might get what she wanted, which she kind of does in the end, if we're if we're being honest. She really kind of does get what she wants, but I just, I don't know, it just seemed like a waste of Walton Goggins, who's very, very talented. I didn't think that that character mattered a whole lot. I mean, yeah, he caused a few minor problems, I think, but I mean, and you even had Ghost was almost like It's almost like they were playing a, it was almost like a a big heist where it was like who can get there first sort of deal and who can steal what first. And it's almost like Hank and, and Scott and them stealing from themselves at that point as well too. So it was almost like a race to see who can get the lab and who can get this machine to the quantum realm up and running first and who's going to be able to use it the best. Which eventually we see Hank go in there and get Janet and we think we get our happily ever after. But... Before I even talk about the end credit scene, I want to talk about something that I really did like about this movie too, and, and this, this goes again to the comedy. First of all, I love Paul Rudd. I think he's hilarious. Pretty much everything he's been in has been funny. He's a likable character. He's a likable guy on screen. So I think he's the perfect choice for Scott Lang, and I'm so glad that he's that he is back as, as Scott Lang. But I got to tell you, his relationship with Agent Wu, who's played by Randall Park, Every scene that they had together, I was laughing, I was locked in. It was almost like a buddy comedy from two people who really don't like each other, but seemed to find a way to have this weird, funny chemistry on the screen. I mean, whether it was the close-up magic thing that they were doing or that whole thing where he asks him if he wants to go to dinner. At the end, when he kept, when he's trying to arrest him for like the fifth time, it was just really funny every time that they interacted with each other. So I could easily see, you know, how they're saying Marvel might do the short films again. I would love to see just a Scott Lang, Agent Woo short film, just of them just maybe going on the road and doing a close up magic show at like a kid's birthday party or something. I just think that those two were really, really hilarious together. And and I would love to see more. I, again, before I get to the end credit scene, I don't want to forget about Evangeline Lilly, who stole the friggin' show, man. I mean, honestly, if I mean, Paul Rudd did, did an amazing job as always too. But I was so captivated by Evangeline Lilly in this movie, the Hope Van Dyne character. She showed vulnerability. She showed how much of badass she can be. She she so. She's so She showed such depth of character from start to finish in this movie. And she was never the damsel in distress. That was one thing I really, really loved that they did in this movie too. Never at any point did I feel like she was the damsel in distress. If anything, she was the one that was pushing the envelope and making that team what it was. She was the powerhouse in this movie. And I saw an interview with her, I can't remember who it was with, where she said she had to you know, really speak up on the set. She wanted to be very vocal about her character on the set. And if this is what happens when Evangeline Lilly is vocal on set, listen to this woman in the future because she brought out some great, great stuff working with the team behind this movie and Peyton Reed, who did another fantastic job. I got to tell you, I would listen to everything Evangeline Lilly had to say. If she had anything to do... With the final product of what we saw from her character. I say bravo for whoever decided to listen to her. And the fight skills were unbelievable. When she had her fight scenes, man alive. They were awesome. So bravo to the the fight choreographers and the stunt people too on this movie. Because I thought they did a great job. I love the salt shaker thing which we saw in the trailer. I was a little bummed that they revealed the salt shaker thing. And the Hello Kitty Pez dispenser thing in trailers because I thought that would have been something really funny to see in the movie for the first time. So I kind of hate how trailers ruin stuff like that. But speaking of ruining, I thought this movie set a really nice mood. It had the happy ending feel where, you know, everybody's getting their family back, right? And that's kind of what this movie is to me. The Ant-Man is the lighthearted, one of the lighthearted movies. In the Marvel MCU, but then you get the mid credit scene. I'm not even gonna talk about the end credit scene. Let's talk about the mid credit scene because that's the important one. Because you see Scott enter the quantum realm to get more of the quantum energy to help Ava and heal her. Of course, we see that the Dr. Foster is gonna be taken care of. Ava, he didn't want to leave her in the end when he had the chance. She wanted him to go, he wouldn't. Long story short, he sent in the quantum realm to get more of that quantum energy to bring it back. But then what happens? Thanos snaps his freaking finger somewhere else. And yes, Avengers Infinity War rears its ugly head at the end of Ant-Man in the mid credit scene. And Janet, Hope, and Hank are all gone. They weren't feeling so good. They drifted off into dust. And now Scott is stuck in the Quantum Realm. Screw that. Seriously. This guy just gets his daughter back. He just gets his family back. And now he's stuck. Although I guess a good reason to not have to make another Ant-Man movie for a while anyway, right? You know there wasn't going to be one for a little bit anyway. But now he's stuck there. But now I feel like that needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. you really going to make me wait another three, four years or whenever you decide to make an Ant-Man movie again to get him out of there? Because you're not going to leave him stuck in there at this point, right? And at some point we know that Hope and the gang are going to come back. I wouldn't even be upset if the next movie isn't even Ant-Man, if it's just the Wasp. If you want to have a Wasp movie that is focused on getting Scott out of the Quantum Realm this time, I'd be okay with that. Or even a team-up between Hope and maybe even Captain Marvel down the road, once we get the Captain Marvel movie going. I I, I mean, there's a a bunch of other characters. I mean, Evangeline Lilly said something that she wants an all-female Marvel MCU movie. Why not make that part of it? Why not just make it a team-up? between two female characters in the MCU and let them go get Scott back. Let them rescue him from the quantum realm this time. Maybe it's a wasp and wasp thing where when Janet comes back, the two ladies go in there and find Scott. I think that that would be really cool. I think Scott and Janet still have a little bit of a connection, right? So that would be a cool idea as well. All in all, I really, really loved Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think it was either really close or just a little bit better. Then the first one, I know that the whole Sonny Birch thing kind of set me back and there were a couple of slow parts. There were a thing where I thought, thought things dragged out a little bit longer than they should have, but all in all, another successful, and, and this is another character that, that was a little bit of a risk when they did the first movie and it worked out and this one worked out just as well, if not better with Evangeline Lilly really taking a strong lead in this. So I'm going to go ahead and give this, let's see. Eight sets of drums, playing them in your underwear in the middle of your house out of ten. So that's eight out of ten, just in case that was a little bit too long for you. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Up next, yes, there is some nerd news to talk about before San Diego Comic-Con, and we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein erstwhile monk turned traveling
0: medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein coming January 2nd wherever podcasts are available.
1: Hey, this is Kobe Bell from the Gifted on Fox and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy. Damn.
0: We definitely have some big pre-San Diego Comic-Con news to talk about. and It is time for nerd news. And here's one I didn't expect to get any news about this week with Marvel Studios not being at San Diego Comic-Con. But we find out that Black Widow not only is getting a solo movie, but she now has a director as well. And that is Kate Shortland, according to The Hollywood Reporter. She was actually most known for directing a Nazi drama called Lore. She's worked on a couple of other things recently as well. And they apparently met with, by the way, 70 directors for this project, but really, really wanted to focus on a female director. The shortlist had all female directors on it as well. Now, actually, Scarlett Johansson pushed for Shortland to be a part of the project, and clearly that worked out very, very well for her. Now, the one thing we don't really know in all this is that Jack Schaefer actually wrote a script for this movie no word on whether or not that script is going to be used but black widow is only going to be the second female-led movie from marvel studios i'm sure that you could make i mean it's not like females haven't played a huge role in plenty of the marvel movies up to this point but but you know finally getting the spotlight on, on, Cap- on captain marvel next year and then no release date by the way for this black widow movie either I mean, yeah. There's definitely an and it's about time sort of thing for this. And you could you could argue that, by the way, that the Wasp character carried this Ant Man and the Wasp movie. I forgot to mention that, and well, I kind of mentioned it in my review not too and not too longer early in the show. But I mean, it just seems like the MCU is getting to the point where a Black Widow movie certainly. It fits in now for sure. I mean, not that it wouldn't have fit in before either, mind you, but it just seems like, okay, if you're going to be starting to shift the focus, why not start to shift the focus on the Black Widow character, on Captain Marvel? And maybe the the power of the female character could be what sets the MCU into that next wave of success. Because, you know, when you've been doing well for so long and you look towards the future, sometimes that's difficult. Success can actually end up being difficult when you're like, wow, we've done this. We've done this. What do we do to keep being successful and you know, for things to not really get old? And that's to, hey, guess what? You haven't really focused on your female characters as far as spotlights are concerned too much. Why not do that now? And maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they get it. Maybe they're realizing, oh, wow, okay, so we've got all these great female characters that we could be doing something with and we're just not. So let's see if we can do that with Black Widow and Captain Marvel. And I mean, we've, there's already been chatter about a Miss Marvel movie at some point. I wouldn't be surprised if we get She-Hulk brought into the mix at some point as well. There's just so many female characters that you could use for leads in movies for M- for the MCU. So I- I'm definitely happy that this is happening. And there are no shortage of stories that they could use for this either, that's for sure. Here's one that I'm kind of excited and at the same time kind of cautious about. And that is the fact that what you're going to be getting... Another RoboCop movie, this according to Deadline, but here's the deal. This is the one that's going to perk your ears up. It's Neil Blomkamp that is going to be involved with, and yes, that Neil Blomkamp from Alien, from District 9, so many great things. Now, the title of the movie is going to be RoboCop Returns. Let's get this stuff out of the way. Justin Rhodes, who's currently working on Tim Miller's Terminator movie, is going to be rewriting the script for this, and this is kind of meant to be the sequel to the original that never really happened decades ago there was a, remember there was a strike there and you know things kind of got haywire and certain projects just didn't get done now one of the interesting things that i saw when i was reading this article on deadline is that Blumkamp was really really stressing it seemed like in his interview the importance of the human component here and i think that that's something they kind of got lost in the in the recent reboot of RoboCop. It just didn't feel right. It didn't feel authentic. It never really captured what the original movie was. And and to hear Blumkamp say that, because he he also went on to say that one of the reasons he loved it is that yeah, it was also it was a great sci-fi movie, but there was so much else going on beneath the surface there that just made it that much better and that much different. And that's one of the things that he wants to bring back to RoboCop. And I say bravo to that because he certainly gets it. And I don't necessarily look at Blumkamp's work on Alien for this particular movie. I'm looking at District 9 because you see that the, how much he brought the human element into District 9 when that, when that movie was going on and, and, and how the aliens were treated. And then of course the main character whose name escapes me off the top of my head. I apologize for that. Is you know as he's making his transformation, there's very much a human element to that as well. So I look at his work on District Nine and say, man, if he can apply the same kind of vibe for RoboCop that he did for District Nine, but tweak it, because you'd have to tweak it. You couldn't do a District Nine version of RoboCop; it just wouldn't work. But you know, it, there's certainly a good, a good solid ground to start on there. When you look at what you did with District 9 and bringing in that human component. And when I factor these things in, that's when, I, that's when I turn from, do we really need a RoboCop movie? To, you know, this could really work as a RoboCop movie. Now, we don't know, you know when this is going to be set or anything like that. Will they turn back the clock and set it back in the 80s? Do you do modern times? There's certainly options that you could use. I actually wouldn't mind a bit of a throwback movie, you know, some practical effects in there as well. I, th- I think that could work. Call me crazy. I know I've said on the show before, we've got CG, why not use it? But I don't know, this is one of those times where I wonder if it wouldn't be cool to throw it back and use practical effects and, you know, really bring a, an authenticity to it. I think that could really work, but again, it's really hard. you got to hold out judgment until we know more about this. And, and I'm sure it's going to be a little bit of time before we find that out. Another bit of casting news that we have is for Why the Last Man, of course, which is going to be coming from FX. They're just going to call it Why, it looks like. And Deadline has some casting news there as well. Diane Lane is the name that has to jump right out at you. Attaching her to this project gives it legitimacy. She's a great actress. She's going to really command the screen in this show, I have no doubt. She's going to be playing Senator Jennifer Brown. And then you've got Barry Keegan who's going to be playing Yorick Brown. Of course, Y, the last man himself, that is her son. And then we have Imogen Poots, who's going to be playing Hero Brown. There's plenty of others that have been cast in the show as well. And if you're not familiar with why the last man I've ran for 60 issues from Vertigo, Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerrera are involved. And it follows the story of Y, who traverses a post-apocalyptic world in which a cataclysmic event has decimated every male mammal, not just human, mammal save for just the lone human, which is Why the Last Man Standing. So, the New World Order of Women will explore gender, race, class, and survival. Even if you've never read a page of Why the Last Man, you have to look at the concept for this show and go, Man, that is a cool idea. That is a cool concept. And with Brian K. Vaughn, who's going to be involved in producing and very much having his hands in how the story is told, again, just tells me that, FX understands that, okay, we want this to be as authentic to the story as possible. Let's get the guy that brought this story to life to help us out with that. And Brian K. Vaughn going to be a very, very busy dude in the coming years when it comes to stuff like that. And clearly has the talent for it. So, and I mean, this is a multiple award winner. This is just one that really, really makes sense. FX, I think, is going to be a great network to this. It'll, It'll add a little bit of an edge. You won't have to hold anything back on FX. We've seen that. With American Horror Story, we've seen that, seen that with Legion. And you just keep going down the list. FX just has a history of putting out great, great and intense TV. And you don't even need to make this super intense. But just setting that tone, I think it's going to be, it, FX is just a perfect network for this. Now here is one of the those announcements that might fly under the radar before San Diego Comic-Con. But damn it, we're going to talk about it. ...on this show because I'm excited, and that is the fact that a Jurassic Park tabletop game is going to be coming, and it's going to be called Jurassic Park, the Chaos Gene from Mondo. Yes, that Mondo. Now, the the basics of this is it's going to be meant for two to four players, ages 14 and up, and there's going to be four factions, and there will be figures. They showed the rough outline... Of what the figures are going to be are going to look like, and once you slap colors on there, it's going to be beautiful. But the four factions are this: you have InGen, you have you can be park guests, you can be the Raptors, or the T Rex. And I mean, you know, just like how you had your favorite Monopoly piece, right? For some reason, I was always the dog. I th- it's because I'm a dog lover. It has to be it. But a- anyway, it's easy to look at this and say, well, I mean, this is kind of obvious, but it really isn't because the the cool thing that Luke Byers, who created the game, is doing here is that each faction is going to have their own separate strategies, own separate goals, own separate perspectives. You also have to find certain items for your faction, and decide. you can also decide on whether to attack or avoid certain dinosaurs or other elements of the game, and that can help you gain experience to customize your faction. Now, I know you're looking at the raptor and the T-Rex and saying, well, that seems like it's the most fun because, you know, the raptor is going to hunt, or the T-Rex is going to be very, very methodical, in gen of course going to be working on stuff that's going on that's going wrong in the park that's going to be part of the game and the park guests maybe just trying to survive what's going on and escape so th- those are kind of your perspectives on what's going on here but how fun could this be and not only that how much replayability does this have because if you're starting off even let's say it's a two player game you're starting off and maybe in the first game you're in gen or, and then maybe in the second game, you're the T-Rex. You've got a lot of replayability here. And this, to me, seems like a game that isn't going to necessarily play out the same way twice, at least not right away. So, to me, any table top game that can give you several good plays or like a year's worth of time of playing under six months where you're really enjoying it and you're bringing something new to the table each time, I think this is a winner, man. I cannot wait to get my hands on this game. I love the fact that we've got so many good tabletop games coming now. We have the Batman the Animated Series coming from IDW Games, and now this Jurassic Park tabletop game. And like I said to Colin Bunn last week, you, tabletop games are so successful on Kickstarter. And the way these things are going, we're just getting so much great tabletop content. And I love that there's a focus on the art, just like Colin said to me last week as well. There's such a focus on the art for these, whether it be cards or... Or whether it be the figures that are going to be in this game as well. And, and the, the T-Rex figure is going to be just absolutely gorgeous. And, and of course, bigger than the others. I mean, if you go to downandnerdypodcast.com, go to my story that I read about this for the uh, pre-San Diego Comic-Con announcements. And you'll see it for yourself. It's going to be great when you get colors on that thing. More San Diego Comic-Con news itself going to be happening next week on the show. That is going to be kind of our opener show. For San Diego Comic-Con, of course, I will be there in San Diego for that. So look out for plenty of San Diego Comic-Con news coming next week. And, of course, always on our social media pages and on our website as well. But that's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, speaking of San Diego Comic-Con, From the Bridge is a documentary that's going to be talked about in Ballroom 20 on Thursday. I have the director, Spencer Lee, to talk to me about it next and get you ready on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book creator Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You may or may not have heard of a documentary called From the Bridge, which is basically about fandom in general. It's going to actually have a panel at San Diego Comic-Con on Thursday at 10 a.m. I just happen to have the director with me this week. It's Spencer F. Lee. Spencer, how you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: So, Spencer, you've been working on From the Bridge for like four years now, so right away it's easy to see this is a passion project for you, so... How much of an inspiration has Kerry O'Quinn been throughout the process? And what did you hope to see this film become?
1: carrie has been a great help. You know, um, Kerry assisted in putting together uh, a lot of the interviews. And, you know, Kerry's work with Fangoria and as a co-creator of Fangoria and the co-creator of Starlog, you know, he's been the inspiration for uh, over two generations of filmmakers. You know, he's a wonderful man, very insightful and this is a great celebration of his work, as well as the work of many of the uh, iconic visionaries and writers and artists who have helped create these genres in is, uh, is a celebration of their work. Speaking of
0: those interviews, you're able to get a ton of interviews from many pioneers in different fandoms like Stan Lee and Neil Adams and others like Gene Simmons and Michelle Nichols, just to name a few. So what do you feel like you learned about the definition of fandom from all those conversations?
1: It's really interesting you asked that because I've always been a fan of the stories, the artists, uh, as well as their creations and how things have evolved over the years. And, you know, I, I, I learned a lot, you know, I, I learned a lot about, it's kind of, kind of sound a little odd, but you know, when you love something, sometimes you don't always examine why you love something. You just, you know, you love it, but you don't sit there and psychoanalyze it and break down exactly why you love it. Right. But Interviewing these artists and these visionaries gave me, and to hear their stories firsthand, gave me a chance to do a little introspection about my love for the uh, genres and about my own personal fandom. And it's something I discovered was that, I tell you what, a good way to say it is this a lot of non fans might not understand the fandom movement and exactly what it is. You know, they might see really colorful costumes. And they're very cool, and they might see a lot of people celebrating, but they don't really know what they're celebrating and why they're dressed up the way they are. They know it, they know that there's comic books out there. They know that there's movies out there, but maybe they don't have the connection of exactly what's going on. And at the heart of it, what I discovered, which I think I already instinctively knew, but as I analyzed it and created this movie, what I discovered at the heart of it was really it's a celebration about our diversity and our uniqueness as human beings. And the stories that these artists created are basically the stories of humanity and life. They're about love. They're about betrayal. They're about sacrifice. They're about conquest. They're about overcoming the odds. They're about winning. You know, some of them are about losing. And they teach us acceptance. And they teach us a lot about ourselves and a lot about humanity and what makes us unique. And the costumes and the characters that are in these stories are, are an extension of the stories themselves. So it's basically... In my opinion, what I've seen and learned is that the fandom is actually the celebration of the diversity and the acceptance of ourselves and the uniqueness that makes us ourselves. And it's, it's about the love for the artist and they're bringing it to us.
0: One thing that was addressed right away in the trailer for the movie was how a lot of us were bullied or at the very least made fun of for loving these different fandoms. Now, a couple of years ago, we had a discussion on our show about the word nerd itself. I argued that the word has kind of evolved into more of a badge of honor now. Now, would you agree with that? And how much do you think this film addresses that issue?
1: You know, I don't know. That's really hard to say because there's a lot of opinion speculation in the question. But... As saying as a badge of honor, um, I think that maybe the, what's honorable about it is that we always knew that there was nothing wrong with us and that we were normal people just like everyone else. Right. And perhaps the fact that we had a love of characters who are obviously fantasy characters of the fantastic realm maybe that's what gave the misconception of a disconnect. You know, we, when we look at life around us, there's lots of heroes in the world. You know, I think of police officers, I think of firefighters, I think of first responders. You know, and, and these are real life, you know, I think of, you know, the military. These are real life heroes that make a difference for us and, and the world. So whenever people celebrate those things and they do it with uh, fantastical creations like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman, I think the common misconception is that there's a disconnect between that and reality when there's really not. You know, It's, it's the story about celebrating humanity and what makes us unique and, and the common decency that humans have. And I think that that's, you know, when you say a badge of honor, I think it's honorable to be fans of humanity and the goodness in humanity. You know, I think I think that's where the honor comes from. And just because it's uh, maybe Spider-Man versus a police officer, you know, one's a fantastical creation and the other one's reality, I think maybe that's what might have uh, led to people being labeled as geeky or maybe nerds is because of that. And I think it's a misconception. You know, it, it's really about the love of humanity and uh, all of us. It's what the, is the heart of it.
0: Well said. Well said. I totally agree with you on that. Now, other than entering the mainstream in pop culture... What would you say is the biggest evolution in comic book fandom up to this point?
1: (laughs) That's really hard to answer. I I can think of five particular milestones that definitely helped uh, evolve it. You know, and it goes back to one of them being Neil Adams with his uh, creation of the Green Lantern, Jon Stewart character, who was the first black superhero for DC films. I think it's Stan Lee with his uh, creation of the Black Panther character for Marvel, who was the first black superhero for Marvel, And then I think of some other, which might seem more whimsical, but I think of, like, for example, uh, Spider-Man, whenever he got his black costume in the 80s. You know, it might seem really whimsical that Spider-Man got a costume, but all of a sudden people always knew what Spider-Man looked like, but now he's got a new costume. So Mm -hmm. you think about that concept, and you think about it's a change. It's drawing attention to something. And then that got followed up with in the Death in the Family series from Batman, whenever uh, the Joker killed Robin, Jason Todd. And all of a sudden, you have another moment where where this is an adult, realistic situation, you know, life and death. And this Mm -hmm. is the death of, of a very iconic character and being jason todd's version of robin so all of a sudden you've got the media and the world who notices that hey you know this is a real life and death situation being portrayed in this comic book right here and then that was followed up with the death of superman at the hands of doomsday which of course was a giant event during the time that it came out and you had people saying hey you know superman's dead in the comics and then so when, when you start exploring these social changes, whether it be with the uh, John Stewart Green Lantern and Black Panther, whether it be a simple costume change for Spider-Man, which was very attention-getting, uh, or whether it's the death of Robin, Jason Todd, or the death of Superman himself, you begin to see that there's some seriousness to these stories and that they're not all Saturday morning cartoon-like, which was a big conception of people. You know, a lot of people saw the Super Friends cartoons in the 70s and 80s. They saw Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends in the early 80s. And those were very, very non... They were fun stories, for sure, but they weren't very serious stories. They they didn't really tackle life and death. You know, they, they were very whimsical in that sense. So now, all of a sudden, you've got the comic books themselves they are starting to have a bigger change on society and civil rights, as well as when you start killing characters. And, of course, now the old saying is, oh, if you die in a comic book, you're just going to come back a few years, a few years later. Right. And yeah, there's absolute truth to that. But the very fact that the young readers and old readers are experiencing the loss of a loved one, even though it's a comic book character, it creates a very seriousness in something. And I think those five particular milestones in comics helped uh cement fandom and help bring a seriousness to it
0: talking to, to director spencer lee of from the bridge which of course you can find out more about at san diego comic-con this upcoming on thursday july the 19th at 10 a.m with that big panel now spencer well i know you get to talk to a lot of great talent and super fans from from the bridge i have to wonder was there any one person or a particular fandom that you weren't able to address that you hope to do so in the future
1: you know, I'm still editing it, and the movie has not been completed. It's very close to being completed. But there's always room for George Lucas. You know, I would love to talk to him about Star Wars. Of course. Yeah. And as for as for uh, elements of fandom itself, you know, I've, I've talked to many, many, many fans, you know, from one side of the coast to the other. And I hope that I've done a, a great service to them in being able to capture their stories for the film. And the stories of us, the fans are, you know, this is really a story about us, you know, uh, a story about humanity and about uh, acceptance of one another, you know, and the diversity and the unique qualities that make us human. So I think fan wise, I've I've got some incredibly amazing stories and artistic wise, you know, I've interviewed some great artists and visionaries, but, uh, you know, it's a really it's a really great movie and I can't wait to share it with everyone. But like I said, you know I'd love to get George Lucas. If that's possible. I think that uh, there's a lot of people in the in the film that have said a a lot of wonderful things about him. You know, and I think that uh, I'd love to have his input. Uh, you know, Stanley had a lot of wonderful things to say about George Lucas in his interview. Gene Simmons did as well as Neil Adams. You know, had wonderful things to say about uh, George Lucas, and I like you know to share the love with everyone. And maybe that would happen. I don't know, but. I'm uh, always optimistic.
0: That's right. There are, there's always time until it actually comes out. You never know what could happen.
1: <laughs> hey, that's correct.
0: There you go. Now, Spencer, with the popularity of fandom, that means there's a lot of good, but there's also that some bad that can come from that popularity as well. So, how do you feel about some of the toxicity that that has entered the fan that has entered fandom in general? And how do you feel like is the best way to address that?
1: When you say toxicity is entered,ed I'm I'm, a, I'm going to make the assumption that you're maybe talking about some of the negative feedback we've had for the latest Star Wars films, as yes. well as DC something something well, you along know,
0: those lines. Okay. Yeah,
1: sure. And I tell you what, uh, the way I approach that, as well as the way I, I approach anything in life that's opinionated with different p- opinions from people, is I like to try. What I like to do is sit down and I make two lists up. And I, first off, whatever my personal opinion is. I like to number those uh, those opinions and the strongest parts of them, 1 through 10. And then I like to look at the opposing side, you know, who might have a different opinion from me, and I try to list 1 through 10 of why they have that opinion. Once I have that list built up, I like to kind of look at both lists and see where the common ground is, you know, see where the disconnect is and why I might feel a certain way and why they might feel a certain way. And I try to, to you know, find common ground between the two. Also. A lot of the opinions, uh, whether they're toxic or whether they're strong or, you know, from one side or another, it really does. But what it shows is the love for something. You know, people wouldn't have such strong opinions one way or another about a subject if they didn't feel invested in it and they didn't feel like they truly loved it. You know, so I think that the very fact that there's so much opinion out there is very, uh, I think it's healthy. You know, opinion and debate is what helps bring change and what helps guide something. You know, so uh, I mean, I I absolutely have really strong opinions about these topics. I always like to say though, uh, is that uh, you know, I'm I'm not a preacher, so I don't try to speak religion, and I'm not a politician, so I don't like to try to speak politics because those aren't really my jobs in life. Mm-hmm. You know, as an artist, my job is to basically take my surroundings that I perceive, my environment around me, and create art from it to to have people continue a discussion and continue a dialogue. So that all kinds of people can find common grounds. You know, the, the title from the bridge is originally from Carrie Quinn A uh, Quinn's magazine Starlog, and that was his monthly column that he wrote. So that's and so that's what it means to Carrie. But the title from the bridge, to me, what what I take from it is it's actually the fandom in my mind is building bridges amongst people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's building bridges from, from from to everybody. You know, and bridges of love, acceptance, and understanding. And I think that at the root of everything, is it's all about respect and understanding and finding common ground, you know, common decency. You know, as, as people, we should always try to cling to our common decency because that, that's what holds mm-hmm. life in order together. And a simple truth to everything is that we need both people. You know, we, we need both. You know, you, society and the world can't survive with one side or another. Mm-hmm. You need both people to make it work. You know, so it's all about finding common ground and acceptance and compromise. And that's how you work together with people. And that's what I hope this movie helps to do is to bridge people together and bring them together.
0: Now, we've heard the saying that you can never have too much of a good thing. Now, we have more of what we love than ever, especially you mentioned Star Wars. It seems like we have a st- new Star Wars movie every 6 to 12 months, and there's a number of comic book properties on television as well and so on. So I know that there's a lot of opinions about this as well. I'm curious to get yours. Do you think that there's a potential for fatigue in certain fandoms, and how do you address that issue?
1: If there is fatigue, it'll, it'll sort itself out. Not, I mean, for how many years did we not have enough material? I mean, I could think about when I was in junior high, in high school, even in college, you know, I, I so badly wanted an X-Men television series. I wanted a new Star Wars movie. I wanted an Avengers cartoon. I wanted an Avengers movie. I, I wanted it all, you know, and, and I think that as a fan, we we just, we wait back in anticipation for all these television series, all these movies, all these comic books, and I don't think that there can be an oversaturation, and the reason being is that things tend to to uh, sort themselves out, you know if there's too much of one thing, then obviously part of it's going to you know it's going to drop off if there's not enough of something, then hopefully something takes its place and, and balances it out so you know it I think that there's going to be an equilibrium and a balance between all this, and personally I don't think that there's too much I mean just because it's all out there doesn't mean you have to absorb it all you know you, you might have a preference. Let's say, for example, you only have so many so many hours in the day. You know, there's like a Batman series and there's a Spider-Man series. Well, you know, you don't have time to watch both of them, so you're going to watch the one that appeals to you the most and the one that you feel like is, is you know better done. You know, so, and I think that that's how these things seem to find uh, equilibrium and balance themselves out.
0: I'm so glad you agree with me on this. <laughs> I hear so many people saying, well, there's too much of this and too much of that. And I'm like, are you crazy? This is, this is great. Just, you know, take the best of it and and just go with that.
1: Yep. I agree.
0: Speaking for me personally, Spencer, I have a three-year-old son and I can't wait to see what is the first fandom that really catches his attention. Now, do you feel like From the Bridge is not just important for this generation of fans and our generation of fans, but for the next generation of fans as well?
1: Absolutely. You know, uh... I can speak for myself on this, that I like to know what came before me. I like to know what led up to this. And I'm very hopeful that From the Bridge is an historical film that teaches future generations to come of what these icons and these visionaries did to lay the groundwork for for the entertainment in the future. I mean we definitely don't know what characters are gonna still remain to be popular in the future what new characters will be created that will be popular in the future these are things that we don't know and I'm excited to find out and I'm sure everyone is but uh, at least you know we'll have from the bridge and we'll have other documentaries and and records of history and uh, and hopefully that will inspire our generation and it will uh, help them know the roots of fandom and, and where this all came from.
0: If you're going to San Diego Comic-Con this year, 2018, be sure to catch the From the Bridge panel. It's going to be happening on Thursday, July the 19th at 10 a.m. It's a star-studded panel that you're not going to want to miss. But Spencer, for anyone who's not going to Comic-Con, do we have a release date for this yet?
1: We don't have a firm release date. I know we're looking at uh, the end of summer. You know, uh, reality is is that until the film has its final cut and we've signed off on it, then uh, we don't know what kind of, what number of theaters are going to carry the film. But, you know, obviously as a filmmaker, I I like as many theaters as possible to carry it. But I think at the end of the day, that's going to have to do with the fans themselves and the demand for the film. You know, so I would say if you would like from the bridge to be in your local theater, no matter what city you live in, you know, we will have an opportunity to address that and, and hopefully bring some people together to make that happen.
0: Make sure you're following all the progress as well at FromTheBridge.com. It's Spencer Lee, director of From the Bridge. Thank you so much for joining me this week.
1: Thank you very much.
0: As you listen to Spencer Lee talk, you can just hear his passion for fandom in general, right? And wanting to keep the story going. And, and you know, the lesson here is never forget your first love. Never forget where you came from and pass that knowledge on because that is how our nerd culture culture is going to stay alive for decades, and let's even say centuries. Let's throw that out there centuries to come from now. And I can't wait to see From the Bridge when it does come out. But until then, if you're at San Diego Comic Con, make sure you're stopping by Ballroom 20 on Thursday morning, bright and early, to see the From the Bridge star studded panel and get more information at FromTheBridge.com. That's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Director Spencer Lee for joining me this week. And I want you to keep up. I mean, you could be listening to this, and I might already be in San Diego for Comic Con this year. So follow us on social media at Down and Nerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Also follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. All kinds of great photos gonna be going up all week long for San Diego Comic-Con. Gonna be covering the press rooms the floor, panels, you name it, we've got you covered for San Diego Comic-Con 2018. But remember, no matter whether you're in San Diego or right where you are, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.